0: Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today is November 7th, celebrated as the anniversary of the Russian Revolution, sometimes called the October Revolution. Russia in 1917 still went by the old Julian calendar, which was 13 days behind the Gregorian calendar used in the rest of Europe and the world. So the October Revolution is commemorated. On November 7th, we're now separated from that revolution by more than 100 years, 104 years to be precise. The Soviet Union, which that revolution brought into existence, disintegrated 30 years ago. But the Russian Revolution, despite what it turned into, remains an inspiring example of mass popular mobilization and action that brought about fundamental social and political change, showing the world what was possible. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and it's the 7th of November, 104 years since. The Russian Revolution. And as I was saying in the introduction, it opened up a new world and showed what was possible to humanity. And contrary to the many myths about the Russian Revolution, that it was, it was the work of a wide and deep popular movement, not a Bolshevik coup from above. In fact, the Russian Revolution began In the freezing winter of 1917, in Petrograd, now called St. Petersburg, on what would be International Women's Day, women who were ground down by long days at the factory and longer and longer lines to buy bread, which was in short supply because it was World War I, revolted. They left their factories and they took to the streets. And when there was this gigantic human tide, the police Called in the army because they couldn't push back all of the women. And when the soldiers showed up and the soldiers were peasants in uniform, they joined the revolt. The empire collapsed overnight. We're going to take it up from there now with this rebroadcast. From four years ago, on the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, when I switched roles with Robert Brenner, normally the producer of the show, he interviews me instead of me interviewing him on 100 years since October, when the Russian working class opened the possibilities for humanity. This is the Russian Revolution 100 years ago, when the working class in Russia opened up the possibilities for humanity. That is the Russian Revolution of October 1917, which opened up a new historical epoch and was greeted with enthusiasm by workers around the world. Never before had workers come close to winning power, though many participated in political life in the social democratic parties of Western Europe. But now, suddenly in Russia, revolution was an actuality, not simply a hope or a threat, as a huge country broke from international capitalism. It's almost impossible for us to imagine today the intoxicating power of that moment. Victor Serge described it as one where life is beginning anew, where conscious will, intelligence, and an inexorable love of mankind are in action. If you haven't seen Reds, and I highly recommend it, you should. One of the witnesses captured the joy of the moment when he described dancing through the streets of New York when he heard the news of the revolution's triumph. And he goes, ah, revolution in Russia, down with the czar. And workers around the world did greet the Russian revolution with jubilation because it represented their broadest aspirations – a new democracy of free workers such as never had before been seen. In Russia's frontline cities of Petrograd and Moscow, Tashkent and Kazan, and in the provinces from Tula to Tambov, Rezan to Kaluga, and in the networks of railroads across the country, hundreds of thousands of workers, peasants, and soldiers took their fate into their own hands. They organized collectively at the level of industry, agriculture, and garrisons, forming committees and councils, developing their politics, their leaderships, and their power to fight their employers and the state all at the same time. In the process, they created innovative forms of self-rule and workers' democracy. Workers' councils, peasants' councils, soldiers' councils, neighborhood councils, village councils, student councils, wherever people came together. And the Russian word for council is Soviet. This new democratic form of worker self-organization arose spontaneously and quickly blossomed independently of the existing political parties. The Soviets made their first appearance in 1905 and were swiftly adopted as an organizing tool by workers around the globe as a higher form of political organization for the working class. This was an historic reversal and a significant step forward for concretizing democracy because it meant that the parties had to compete for workers' allegiance in a common political arena. So the Russian Revolution of 1917 took up where the revolution of 1905 left off. And there were three revolutions in Russia. It was from start to finish, a story of workers' initiatives to amass and ultimately take power. The mobilized masses had become increasingly combative and moved toward revolution in the context of a crumbling Russian empire And a war, that's World War I, that exacerbated all the difficulties of life. By February of 1917, there were strikes and a huge mass rising. Thousands of workers, women and men, and I say women because they were in the lead, came out of the factories and took to the streets of central Petrograd, calling for an end to the autocracy, demanding bread, land, and peace. They overthrew the Tsar and his regime. Most accounts of the revolution in the West and now in Russia characterize it as a violent coup by the minority Bolshevik leadership who had manipulated their way to power, overturning a nascent democracy, mobilizing the working class behind them like soldiers following their officers. This view is central and required for discrediting the October Revolution. But the overwhelming evidence from a century of intense historical scholarship shows otherwise. Political life within the party and its leadership, as in the Soviets, was at all times collective, with tendencies appearing and disappearing over disagreements the Bolsheviks were able to succeed precisely because they were organized not in a top-down military way, but in a decentralized manner, which could integrate large numbers of workers very rapidly and respond immediately to their initiatives. From this vantage point, the Bolsheviks prevailed because they could so quickly respond to the changing demands, objectives, and moods of the workers who made the Bolshevik party their organization, even as they directly collaborated with worker members of other parties. So the Bolsheviks came to represent the working class at its most creative and radical when the class could actually shape the party to its needs. The tactical and strategic skill of the leaders, Lenin and Trotsky, was certainly crucial to the victorious revolution, But we shouldn't forget that they were but first among comrades. Their leadership and that of the Bolsheviks was based on the effectiveness of their activity. The October Revolution has widely been presented as the work of a small conspiracy that intended to establish a monopoly of power for themselves from the outset. But the fact is that the Bolsheviks had won political majorities for their programs in the Soviets in the months leading to October. 100 years ago. The sweep of the popular Bolsheviks in late 1917 was not confined to their landslides in the key industrial centers, in the main cities of Russia, and the nearby garrisons. It extended far into the countryside as radicalized soldiers returned to the villages from the war and recruited rural toilers or workers to their revolutionary sentiments. Let's dwell for a moment on their victory. From February until October, there was dual power, in fact, a very lopsided dual power with the power of the weak Kerensky government, that's a provisional government, on one side and that of the Soviets on the other. The vast majority of workers, peasants, and soldiers only paid attention to the Soviets, but they needed to realize their power, which is why Lenin, on his arrival to the Finland station in April, called for all power to the Soviets – echoed by Trotsky when he returned from exile in May. The Kronstadt sailors, who are going to figure very largely in the revolution, refused to recognize the provisional government in October, and revolts broke out across the entire Russian Empire, with peasants seizing their landlords' granaries and burning down their houses, while within the cities, the cry, all power to the Soviets, grew more and more. Victor Serge tells an amazing story from Kazan where the October insurrection triumph before it even began in Petrograd. He recounts a dialogue between two militants there with one asking the other, what would have happened if the Soviets hadn't taken power in Petrograd? He replied that they couldn't refuse power. The garrison wouldn't let them. When the first said, well, Moscow would rub them out, the second said, no, you're wrong. Moscow could never have gotten past the 40,000 soldiers we had at Kazan. On the 22nd of October, the day the Petrograd Soviet met that turned out to be a plebiscite on the insurrection, there were mass meetings and a tremendous mobilization. Every hall was filled to capacity. John Reed, the American journalist, was present and took notes on Trotsky's speech. Reed said, the people around him seemed to be in ecstasy. Trotsky read a resolution to the effect that they were ready to fight for the workers and peasants to the last drop of their blood and asked who was in favor. Reed said, the innumerable crowd raised their hands as a single man and kept their hands raised. Trotsky said, let this vote be your oath. You swear to give all your strength to support the Soviet, which undertakes to win the revolution and give you land, bread, and peace. The crowd approved and took the oath. This scene was repeated all over Petrograd, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, it was the insurrection. But the real insurrection, the day that we mark as the insurrection on October 25th, was literally anticlimactic and almost nonviolent, at least in Petrograd. Trotsky once said that a revolution is a fight for the army. The side that gets the army wins. Whole garrisons of the army were with the Bolsheviks and with the revolution. Even as the Bolsheviks and the Red Guard they had created marched to the Winter's Palace, now known as the Hermitage Museum, at the moment of the seizure of power, the crack battalion guarding the palace, where the 13 ministers of the provisional government were holed up, crossed over to the revolutionaries, where they were welcomed, as did the women's battalion. The famous Kronstadt sailors that I just mentioned, on the Aurora, their ship, began firing their guns but loaded with blanks. The Red Guards escorted out the provisional government ministers. Some soldiers wanted to kill them, but the Red Guards, who were elected workers' militias, were disciplined and said, don't spoil the proletarian victory with excesses. At the Congress of the Soviets, Lenin took the rostrum and said, we will proceed to construct the socialist order. The insurrection in Moscow was less prepared, less organized, and met with more resistance and violence. The factory owners there were aggressive and brutal against the workers, and the Moscow Soviet hadn't created the Red Guards as the advanced militias. Battles in the street lasted six days, and several hundred died before the White Guards surrendered and were set free and guaranteed safety. Victory was declared. The Russian Revolution was indeed the most radical ever, a first in the world. In the early months, direct democracy prevailed. Far from dictating to the population, the Bolsheviks typically endorsed initiatives that were already taken by the masses. Here's an example. On November 14th, there was a decree that invited the workers to use their own committees to control the production, accounting, and financing of the firms they work in, a call for workers to turn their occupations of workplaces into workers' control and workers' ownership. Land and factories were turned over to peasant and worker Soviets. The debt was canceled, and the banks, trusts, and cartels were nationalized. The new Soviet Union conducted a separate peace with Germany and withdrew from the war. The aim was to create a people's autocracy, democratic to the core, in which the police and standing army were to be replaced by the armed people. John Reed's eyewitness account confirms that this so-called Bolshevik conspiracy was literally carried into power by a colossal and rising wave of public sentiment. But there was a fundamental conundrum The Bolsheviks as Marxists understood that there could be no socialism without democracy, that institutions of democratic self-rule were crucial to the rational, equitable reorganization of society in which the working class majority were in control of their own destinies. That was the basis of Marx's understanding of socialism, the consciously regulated society of the freely associated producers. Simply put, Democracy was at the heart of the socialist project, and without democracy, there could be no socialism. Precisely because socialism required and was inseparable from democracy, the leaders of the Russian Revolution also understood that there could be no socialism if the revolution was confined to backward Russia with its peasant majority. Lenin often said, and this is a quote, it's a terrible misfortune that the honor of beginning the world's socialist revolution should befall backward Russia, ill suited to move to socialism. The peasants supported the revolution because it overthrew the Tsar and the land owning aristocracy, and the Bolsheviks made good on their demand for land, bread, and peace. But the peasants' newly acquired ownership of land was incompatible with the collective ownership favored by the revolutionary working class. This was even more the case after the Civil War that killed so many of the revolutionary workers. Regenerating that revolutionary working class, moving toward industrialization with socialist methods of work, and protecting Soviet democracy, the very basis of socialism, could not be accomplished if the Soviet Union remained isolated. The revolution would have to spread to other countries where capitalism was more developed and workers were closer to being a majority. The Bolsheviks' hopes for extending the revolution depended on their inspiring workers' risings internationally. But this was no pipe dream. Militant workers across the West saw the Russian working class as speaking for them. They appropriated this novel, profoundly democratic form of organization, the Soviet, as a new tool in the arsenal of class struggle. Committees and councils appeared in sit-down strikes, general strikes, occupations, and insurrections from Glasgow to Belfast, Winnipeg to Seattle— Bavaria to Barcelona. From 1918 to 1920, revolutionary crises rocked Europe's capitals. These insurrectionary general strikes, with Soviet or council power, were inspired by the Russian Revolution and aimed to extend it to Europe, the Americas, and beyond. But the German Revolution, the Finnish and Hungarian communes, all the insurrectionary general strikes went down to defeat. The result was devastating. The Russian Revolution was rightly seen as a threat to world capitalism. What could be more dangerous than workers demanding control over their work and their lives? The success of the revolution was greeted with joy or horror all around the world. And, of course, that reaction depended on which side of the class line one stood. For the world's ruling classes, it meant isolating, discrediting, and destroying the revolution lest it spread to their doors. And, of course, for the world working class, the aim was to emulate it. Despite what it turned into, the revolution was a transcendent historic event. It advanced the democratic ideals of the French Revolution for liberty, equality, and fraternity and sought to extend them by deepening democracy into the realm of the social economy. And by fraternity there, I mean solidarity with the goal of ending exploitation, abolishing wage labor, and dismantling hierarchy. So long as the revolution could succeed – With some autonomy, it could inspire greater support both at home and abroad. The world's leading capitalist regimes redoubled their efforts to destroy its inner life and dynamism, leaving it to decay of its own accord even as they sustained permanent pressure on it from outside. The destruction of the revolution's early progress and vitality began with the Civil War brought on by the world's ruling classes – And that was a long and bloody conflict in which 7 million died in contrast with the relatively bloodless revolution. The Bolsheviks did prevail. They won the civil war because they were able to mobilize the people, the Russians, all across the empire against the 14 invading armies, including the United States and Britain and France and Germany and Czechoslovakia and Japan, all of them who sought to choke off the new young Soviet Union, and the white Contras, or counter-revolutionaries, of the day. That would not have been possible if it were the work of a small band of conspirators. They had come up with a way to defeat capitalism in Russia, but they were unable to overthrow capital in the world. Instead, capital showed them the high cost for the attempt. The revolutionary working class was largely killed, and their vibrant institutions of democracy, the Soviets, remained in name only. The young USSR, which in fact is the union of Soviet socialist republics, was economically exhausted and in ruin, under threat internally and internationally, and it lost the agent that could bring democracy to the economy and society. It lost the agent for socialism. The invasion and civil war left the Bolsheviks isolated in a double sense, internally and internationally. The physical destruction of the working class itself also meant its political destruction and the defeat of its own institutions. The working class was tragically unable to democratically defend what it had democratically created. The Soviets became de facto party committees, rubber stamp organs for the party and later the state, losing their independence and becoming lifeless, largely ceremonial institutions. I want to explain that for just a second, because many people wonder why that happened. But as there grew to be only one party, many workers, those who remained, were both in the party and in the Soviets. And it just happened that the meetings were repetitive. So they kind of left the Soviets to go to the party. But the irony was that the tool for socialist democracy bequeathed to the international working class could not itself survive, the aftermath of the Russian revolution. The failure of the workers movement internationally precipitated the defeat of revolutionary socialism itself at the hands of the narrow nationalistic and brutal rule of the Stalin regime. It was in the interests of world capitalism and the Soviet Union to identify Stalin's nationalized economy and bureaucratic authoritarian politics devoid of any democratic forms whatsoever or any role for the working class with Marxism, socialism, and communism. This did real harm to the socialist idea. With Stalin in power in the communist international, or as it's known, the Comintern, which was to be the seat of world revolution— It remained a creature of the Soviet Party state. This was the price paid by the failure of the German Revolution. Had it succeeded, history may have been spared the hellish nightmare of Hitler and Stalin. The world bourgeoisie lost the battle in Russia, but it won the overall class war of the time, staving off further revolutions and isolating the Russian Revolution, falsifying history and linking socialism to dictatorship not democracy. Lenin thought that they would be a weak link in the international capitalist chains and other weak links would join them. But instead, what happened is that the chain reformed and left that link all on its own. Henceforth, democracy was seen as inextricably linked with capitalist property relations, and it was called freedom, which by definition prevented democracy in the social economy And instantiated instead the dictatorship of capital there. Socialism, though anti-capitalist, was identified with stultifying bureaucracy, dictatorship, lack of democracy, and ultimately terror. The Cold War embodied this symbiosis of capitalist democracy and Stalinist socialist dictatorship. And I say that in quotes. It was beneficial and functional for each of its contestants, both of whom had a vested interest in labeling the Soviet system as Marx's vision of communism. From 1917 until 1991, the period of existence of the Soviet Union, the October Revolution was relentlessly attacked, denounced, and distorted beyond recognition in the West. Subsequent revolutions and takeovers elsewhere developed as copies of the Stalinized Soviet Union, anti-democratic, nationalized, and often nationalist societies with little resemblance to socialism. Within the former Soviet Union and its bloc, The key was to prevent any form of democratic challenge to the statist economic status quo, in effect, to promote the Soviet version of Tina, or there is no alternative. The bureaucratic and authoritarian and anti-democratic form that they called communism, tightly controlled from above. Both sides in the Cold War promoted this Stalinized version of communism as the goal of the October Revolution of 1917. And after 1991... When the Soviet Union collapsed, world capital treated the Soviet experience as an irrelevance, a bracket in history soon to be forgotten. Ironically, while the Soviet Union crushed democracy at home and betrayed the revolution's promise, that promise likely enhanced democracy in the industrialized capitalist countries. To counteract and preclude the Soviet threat, Western capitalist regimes conceded to social democratic reforms fought for by organized labor and who were they they were often socialists in the labor movement important elements of a more advanced political democracy such as universal franchise representative democracy free speech and other basic rights were won and allowed in response to the existence of the soviet union and to contain radicalism at home so long as these concessions didn't cut into capitalist profits they could be accommodated socialism which is democratic control over the economy, was put off the agenda. Paradoxically, it took the end of the Cold War to make possible the relinking of socialism and democracy. The disintegration of the Soviet Union, which, as I said, happened in 1991, exposed its bureaucratic authoritarian rule with its dysfunctional anti-democratic economy, discrediting all further attempts to define socialism in terms of dictatorship. But the extreme and growing inequalities of capitalism under the thumb of the 1% have in turn obliterated any notion that the system could enable the democratizing of the economy. This opened the way to broad acceptance for the first time in almost a century of the socialist idea, in particular, the necessity to democratize the economy. This was realized if in embryonic social democratic form with the candidacy of Bernie Sanders – In 2016, a candidacy that would have been unthinkable at the height of the Cold War, socialism is now seen as an attractive alternative to the present, miserable status quo. In fact, survey after survey shows that more than half of young people around the world and especially in the United States – Prefer socialism. We can all quibble with Sanders' socialism, but that misses the point. Millions voted for him in the heart of the beast, no longer afraid of being called pinkos, reds, or commies, and they weren't. The equation of socialism with anti-democratic, statist dictatorship is broken. The revolutionary working class in Russia developed profoundly democratic institutions, and showed the world that workers self-rule through bottom-up democracy was possible and necessary, that socialism and democracy are inseparable. The possibility now exists for going beyond democratic reform of the capitalist economy, a la Sanders, to the democratizing of the economy itself, the project of socialism so magnificently advanced by the Russian working class in making, if not completing, its revolution. (laughs)
1: And that was Susie Weissman, author of Victor Surge, a Political Biography. And now Susie is going to be joined by Robert Brenner, Professor of History at UCLA and author of The Economics of Global Turbulence. Z. Weissman. This is Robert Brenner. I'm going to be talking to you about your wonderful talk on the Russian Revolution just completed. Now, in your talk, your fundamental thesis was that the revolution advanced to the extent that workers' self-organization and workers' democracy was able to advance. So what the advance of the Russian Revolution was, was parallel to the advance of uh, workers' organizations, workers' democracy, and vice versa. To the extent that the revolution reached its limit and began to fall back, uh, the revolution began to die. I want to talk to you about this thesis, which I think can go a long way to allow our readers to understand this great event. So when you presented this thesis, this idea, what you did was start out with the Russian Revolution of 1905 and the Soviets. You went to the revolution of the spring of 1917 and the call for power to the Soviets. You went to the revolution itself, which was prepared by a majority in the Soviets, to the revolutionaries, and then the taking of power by the Soviets to make the revolution. So what I'd like you to do now is develop that idea in relationship to what is the standard version of the revolution, which is that it is made by the product of the Bolshevik Party, which leads the working class and basically explains to the working class how to take power. Can you give us a first run-through of how you would turn that upside down and explain how the Bolshevik Party was an instrument of the working class rather than vice versa?
0: Well, I think this is pretty obvious for anyone and there's a lot of people today who are reading about the Russian Revolution because this entire year the whole world seems to be at least marking it if not celebrating it. And there's a lot of books that have come out. And as usual, and it's really interesting, you can see the divide between those who want to reclaim the Russian Revolution as, you know, the first genuine socialist revolution that promoted the notion that socialism and democracy were one and that in fact socialism was complete democracy. And then on the other side, and you're seeing it now in November in Russia, they're going to release an eight-part documentary called Trotsky, and it's going to show him as this bloody butcher and womanizer. And so what you're going to see from the other side and what you are seeing as you sort of hinted at, is this notion that October was the work of this small conspiracy. Orlando Figgs, in his famous book, said Lenin and the Bolsheviks were like these, they wore leather jackets and rode motorcycles like the Hells Angels of their day. And they came in and they just usurped this movement and took power and intended from the outside to rule alone and to create a dictatorship. To rule over the working class. To rule over the working class. Well, I think I started to dispel that, and all the scholarship shows it. But one of the things, if you go back and actually read this exciting history, you'll see that that entire year, and of course many years before, from 1905 to 1917, and you could go back to 1902, or even earlier when you know Marxism comes to Russia, and they adopt it and they move forward because the conditions were so awful there, but that... That final year especially, all of the advances were the advances of the Russian working class, and especially women and men in Petrograd, which was the frontline city. But as I showed, you know, it happened all over the empire with peasants and workers and soldiers all doing this. But what the Bolsheviks did, because you shouldn't get the notion, I guess, that you can do this without some form of organization. An organization was required, and that was kind of the genius of Lenin to kind of figure that out, But that organization could only be the voice of the voiceless. And there had to be this, as they call it, transmission belt of a back and forward. The workers were creating the party they needed. And if the Bolsheviks weren't that party, then they would have gone elsewhere. Okay,
1: so let's cash that out. Let's cash out your thesis that the way in which democracy and workers' power actually progressed in Russia made it. Possible for the revolution to take place but took place because the Russian working class made the Bolshevik party its instrument. So let's talk about that a bit. So when did this, do you think this really started? I want to suggest or ask you about the pre-revolution in one sense. Wasn't even by the time of World War I and the Russian revolution, weren't the Bolsheviks already a key factor in the Russian working class. Can you talk about the strike movement that came before the revolution.
0: Well, I don't want to go into huge amounts of detail in Russian history, but you could say, especially in the build-up to World War One, in which Russia was on the side of the allies, that there was a push to industrialize, to create the armaments of war. And of course, that developed more and more a Russian working class and one that was incredibly militant, that belonged to trade unions. They recognized soon that the trade unions were not sufficient as the instrument for them to take power, and the notion of the party grew in this period, but they led the strikes. And so what you saw, though, leading up into 1917, as the country went to war and was pushed to do an offensive on all fronts, and soldiers were returning home with their rifles in tow, and as I mentioned, going home to their villages and recruiting peasants, but they said they were going back to join the Bolsheviks in revolution, because who were the Bolsheviks? They were the party that those who were really interested in making a revolution saw as their instrument. And it was the instrument for coming to power. Afterwards, it had its own problems. But then you could say it wasn't a monolith in any way. Even on the day that Lenin arrived from exile and arrived at the Finland station in Petrograd and made his famous April thesis and sort of dared the workers to take power, those who had been in power in Moscow and Petrograd at this point in the Bolshevik party were more moderate and they disavowed him. And in fact, they tried to censor him. And later on, at every instance, when Lenin would say it's time to move toward recognizing that the Soviets have all the power, that the Provisional government is a weak, hollow vacuum. And really, the workers have to just recognize that we have to help them do that. The moderate Bolsheviks didn't want to do that, and they censored him. And Trotsky was the other leader who recognized, along with Lenin, that the moment was at hand. And this you could ask, like, what's the role of a revolutionary party? Well, for one thing, it can't be dictatorial. If it was just deciding things on its own, like when to do the revolution, when to do this and that, nobody was going to listen to it. It had to earn its leadership. And that's what it did, especially with Lenin and Trotsky. And I just want to say, what really defines that leadership is that they were revolutionaries at the moment of revolution. They recognized when the moment was at hand. And they knew that they had to grasp that moment because there wouldn't be another.
1: But to be mischievous about this and to turn your own thesis against you, wouldn't you say that what you just showed was that the party – was quite inadequate to provide leadership for the revolution because in April 1917, if it had been up to the party, there would have been no call for all power to the Soviets. If the party leadership had been in charge, there would have been no move to make the revolution. What made the party revolutionary was not just Lenin and Trotsky, but
0: but the working class and the soldiers. And I think, uh, Robert Brennan, this is exactly the key because the leadership was insufficient to the task that laid before it. Lenin and Trotsky were not. That's what made them the leaders of the revolution and the leaders of the Bolshevik party. But here it was the workers taking the initiatives, going out into the streets, women and men, soldiers. And as I mentioned in that little, you know, exchange from Kazan and that they were in fact ahead of the workers in Petrograd. The workers were always ahead. And Trotsky and Lenin were, as you call it, some people see them as geniuses. They were geniuses because they had the ear of the working class. They listened to the workers. The workers listened to them.
1: Right. So you would say, wouldn't you, that the most advanced workers in, say, the most radical districts in Petrograd were what forced the party itself to accept the theses of Lenin in April coming back. Okay. After the call for all power to the Soviets, what happened then? Did the Bolsheviks then organize the working class into a – disciplined army, which then marched to power. What happened over the summer of 1917?
0: Well, there's a lot that could be said, and I can't go over day by day what happened in the, the counter attempts to destroy the Bolsheviks, to defame them, to slander them, to arrest them, and everything that the regime did to try to stop the Bolsheviks gaining this voice that they had backfired in the extreme and magnified their likability among the masses who saw them as their tool for realizing their power. But it wasn't that they were relinquishing their power to this party. It was that they were fashioning the party to do what they needed them to do. And I've said that in many different ways, but you could actually see it at the moment of the revolution when they created their guards, when they went through and they said as they marched to this opulent winter palace where anyone who saw it would understand why there was a need for a revolution in the first place. When they went in, they said, now, implacable austerity of manners here. You are to loot nothing. No one is to drink. We're going to be models of revolutionary comportment.
1: So what you're saying is that over the summer, the revolutionary working class in Russia was able to so to speak, we could put things upside down to make them clear that they were able to penetrate right the Bolshevik Party so that by the fall of 1917, the Bolshevik Party and revolutionary workers had a majority in the Soviets. Right. OK. So at this point, presumably, this showed now the Russian Bolshevik Party did lead the workers to power by military means, right? The party was united (laughs) in moving to the workers' revolution. Isn't that the
0: case? Well, it didn't work like that at all. (laughs) And in fact, there were elections over the summer, and it took, for one thing, you know, Lenin agreed, too, that they could at no point – assume leadership and dictate to the working class what should be done, even though he thought that the moment was at hand months before he once again thought that the moment was at hand, because he didn't have them in agreement. And that was the key, that it wasn't just the agreement that like Lenin and Trotsky are saying, this is the moment, you have to grasp it. It's the workers saying, this is the moment, when are you guys going to recognize it and help us?
1: Yes. And isn't this exemplified with the vanguard role of the now that the Bolshevik leadership had. Didn't the whole Bolshevik leadership as one call for taking power?
0: Well, no, and that's what I was starting to say, that if I want to name names, the leadership that we called the moderate Bolsheviks that comprised Stalin and Kamenev and Zinoviev and Bukharin to a certain extent, they were not in favor of of moving to power. They thought it was premature. Now, we can argue about that at another time, but the point was that they were, in a sense, superseded by the actions of the workers and the revolutionary leadership of Lenin and Trotsky at this point, who recognized that, yes, this was the moment. And if we don't grasp it.
1: So again, the working class had to overrule a good part of the revolutionary working class party and make it a revolutionary class and you working could, party.
0: You could even say that without casting blame and that there's many people who spend their entire life trying to make a revolution but don't recognize it when it's at hand. They're kind of carried along so how by we... the masses. And what makes a revolutionary, I would say, is that at that decisive moment, They can step outside and see that it's the moment and know what to do next and not just be carried in the stream of events. And the consequences of not having that kind of leadership are, as we know, that rivers of blood will flow if you miss your opportunity. So
1: two final questions on this big discussion. One, how do we know? Are we just BSing when we're saying that – The Bolsheviks represented the working class. Did they really represent? How do we know for sure that the Bolshevik Party by fall 1917 did represent the Petrograd working class? What had happened? And,
0: And not just Petrograd. All over the country from the villages to the central cities and especially in Petrograd. The Bolsheviks won the elections in the Soviets. Prior to that, it was the Mensheviks, Socialist Revolutionaries, even other parties that had held majorities. But by September especially, but even before, the Bolsheviks were winning majorities and became the most popular party. And you can see it became a mass party. It grew by leaps and bounds.
1: And at that point, finally, what did Lenin and especially Trotsky do finally – to show the importance of revolutionary leadership? How did the seizure of power take place in relationship to these leaders as well as the army and the working class?
0: Well, if I think I understand it, they basically followed the initiative of the workers, but they had organized for the moment and understood it. As I mentioned, in Petrograd, it was literally anticlimactic. When you get to the actual day of the revolution, all the excitement happened the days before when they took the resolution and when, you know, thousands of people were shouting all power to the Soviets, here's the moment. They walked in and Exposed the hollowness of that little Kerensky government. The 13 ministers cowered in their room and walked out, and that was that. key was, and I should say just this one thing, that leading up to that moment over the summer and in September, that in in most of the Soviets, the soldiers outnumbered the workers two to one. (laughs) They joined. The the soldiers really wanted this revolution.
1: Right, and that's what I I was hoping you would talk about because – Wasn't it the military revolutionary committees that were organized by the Bolsheviks organizing workers in the army that allowed for the seizure of power?
0: Yes, but then also the workers' militias who created their own Red Guard democratically answerable to all of them. And those were the advanced forces of the revolution itself.
1: So your thesis is that just as the Russian Revolution advanced – by way of the conquest by workers' organizations and workers' democracy of power in 1917, the revolution's limits were exposed by the fact that there were limits to the workers' institutions and worker democracy moving forward. In that situation, can you tell us what were the limits? on workers' democracy, what were the limits, therefore, on the revolution, and what then led to the the decline of the revolution?
0: That's a huge question, but I wanna just say, like, maybe we could distill it into two or three little aspects. And I would say first that these institutions of vibrant democracy from below did not survive the Civil War, that the whole world was caught off guard by the victory of the Russian Revolution, drowning out the cannon of World War I, leading to the end of World War I, inspiring workers' general strikes and insurrections and revolutions everywhere. And you could say that the world, ruling class, were shaking in their boots. And so they really knew they had to stop this revolution in its tracks. Russia was a giant country, but it was really backward. And this is where Lenin's statement, I think, becomes really important. He said, It's a terrible misfortune that the honor of beginning the world's first socialist revolution should befall backward Russia. He also said that in terms of world importance, the German revolution is more important than the Russian one. And if need be, the Russians should... Sacrifice themselves to the German Revolution because they had a better chance of advancing to socialism in the world now this is really important because Russia had the conditions to come to power for the working class to overthrow the outmoded you know autocracy and provisional government, but they on their own, could not move towards socialism, which Marx, as always said, would come to the most advanced capitalist country with countries with institutions of democracy, but- development.
1: But were the Bolsheviks actually aware that they couldn't make a revolution in that one country by themselves?
0: They could make a revolution. They couldn't move to socialism. My
1: apologies. That they could move to socialism? They were
0: were well aware of this. Not all of them because later, as we know, Stalin, and Bukharin thought they could have socialism in a single country. And that was a sort of reaction to the fact that they were now isolated in the world. And they thought that they could do it on their own. But Lenin and Trotsky and all of these same people, some even the moderate ones – understood that they had no hope if it didn't spread. But as I mentioned, it was no pipe dream. It was going to spread. They had this other problem, which we don't have time to go into, is that once the Civil War was over, the frontline guard of the workers who had been in the revolution and made the revolution were mostly killed. And now they were left in, and this goes to your question of democracy, now they were in charge of a country with a massive semi-literate peasantry who had wanted an end to the Tsar and who'd wanted to be able to have their own land. But now they weren't in favor of the Bolsheviks so much. They didn't want to have collective ownership. They wanted private ownership. This is a different question. And so just to say that one while the leadership wanted to help inspire her. Through their own democratic example, workers' risings elsewhere, they also recognized they had to move forward to industrialize and to draw the peasantry into places of work that would be organized under workers' control, socialist methods of work, and to recreate the working class. That's another story. And of course, that's the tragedy of what subsequently happened because the revolution was isolated, that those other revolutions, you know, that were famously tried ended in defeat. But I don't think we should come away from this without celebrating just how important that revolution was. Because as I said, it was, you know, historic and transcendent event, and it did advance the demands of the French Revolution, and of course, the notion of socialism in the world. And perhaps now, 100 years later, we're in a position, as I said, to finally take up that struggle where it left off.
1: Thank you very much, Susie Weisman.
0: I'm Susie Wiseman, and we're going to do something completely different and brand new right here on Jacobin Radio. We're going to do some music. In order now to really commemorate the 104th birthday of the Russian Revolution, what we've been talking about this entire time, we're going to turn to the song that you heard just for a little bit in the break, and that's the International. And that song that is relevant now to the struggles that we face and has been the hymn, essentially, of uh, Revolutionary Struggles Around the World. It was written in 1871 by Eugene Pattier who was a refugee from the Paris Commune, and that was an uprising that threatened to create socialism in a single city in 1871. And Eugene Patier wrote the poem for the song while he was in hiding in the aftermath of the massacre of the communards. That poem was only set to music in 1889, two years after his death. It was then published. And for a while, it was virtually unknown until it was picked up by revolutionaries around the globe. There are versions of it in every language. But to update that, Billy Bragg wrote a new version with new lyrics for the international in 1989 and sang it on Pete Seeger's 101st birthday. We're going to get that version right now.
2: The thing that makes me think of Pete Seeger is the internationale. Because uh, in 1989, the Vancouver Folk Festival, Pete invited me to come on stage at the end of the whole festival, the finale of his set, and sing that song uh, in tribute to the protesters in Tiananmen Square who had been uh, massacred uh, just a month before by the a Chinese state. And Pete wanted to send out a solidarity message to them and he invited folks in this from different countries to come and sing a verse of their nation's internationale. He wanted me to sing the the British version. He came to see me in the Chow Tent at the festival. He sat down with me, he said, you know, can you come on and sing your version? And I'm like, oh, Pete, the lyrics to the British version are so archaic, you know, ye Starvings. From their slumbers and he just said well why don't you just write a, a new verse and before i could say to him pete it's the international you can't write a new verse he'd kind of uh, picked up a scrap of some flyer paper got a pencil from somewhere closed his eyes and began singing under his breath the original french lyrics whilst writing out a literal translation for me which he kind of gave to me like a like a piece of homework and said here you go take that away you've got 24 hours." come back with a new verse. Now, you'll know that there are some people in folk music you can't say no to, and Pete Seeger was one of them. So 24 hours later, I duly returned with my verse that I'd written. I sang it that night. Pete liked it. I liked it. And later that year, the Berlin Wall came down. And over the next 12 months, the scourge of totalitarianism was was swept away thrown into the dustbin of history, rightly so. But I felt at the same time our culture, our left-wing culture, was also being thrown into the trash can. And I felt that if perhaps I I built on that that verse and rewrote a whole new internationality, I might be able to salvage that song and that tradition of internationalism uh, from the dumpster. So uh, I I did that. I wrote a new version and, and I tried it out. Um, of Pete, he liked it uh, Peggy Seeger, Ewan McCall, Dick Gock And people that I respected And I eventually recorded an album The Internationale of which that was the title track And I'm pleased to say that that now uh, Many left wing choirs Certainly in the UK If they sing the International, They more often sing my lyrics And if you buy the Little Red Songbook The IWW Songbook It's right next to the original lyric Of the Internationale So uh, that's thanks to Pete And that's why I want to sing it for you
3: now. Stand up, all victims of oppression, for the tyrants fear your might. Don't cling so hard to your possessions, for you have nothing if you have no rights. Let racist ignorance be ended, for respect makes the empires full. Freedom is merely privilege extended, unless enjoyed by one and all. So come brothers and sisters, for the struggle carries on. The international unites the world in song. So, comrades, come rally, for this is the time and place. The international ideal unites the human race. Let no arm build walls to divide us. Walls of hatred nor walls of stone. Come greet the dawn and stand beside us. We'll live together or we'll die alone. In our world poisoned by exploitation, those who have taken, now they must give and end the vanity of nations with but one earth on which to live. So come brothers and sisters, for the struggle carries on. The Internationale unites the world in song, so comrades come rally for this is the time and place the international ideal unites the human race and so begins the final drama in the streets and in the fields. We stand unbowed before their armour, we defy their guns and shields. When we fight provoked by their aggression, let us be inspired by life and love. For though they offer us concessions, Change will not come from above. So come brothers and sisters, for the struggle carries on. The Internationale unites the world in song. So comrades, come rally, for this is the time and place. The international ideal unites
0: the human race.